Well, we come to that time in our service when we open our Bibles. This morning we're going to be in John 19, the 19th chapter of the Gospel according to John. And we hear God's Word proclaimed. We hear about Jesus and what He's done for us. If you're new to Omaha Bible Church, uh, the reason we do this is because the Bible says that churches are supposed to proclaim the Word of God, uh, even to the people of God. And so here we are, the people of God, wanting to have God's good news of salvation in Christ proclaimed so that we might know more, so that we might be reminded, so that we might have assurance, hope, conviction, whatever it is God wants to do in our lives. So the 19th chapter of the Gospel according to John, the fourth Gospel account, is where we'll be this morning. I know that I'm not telling you anything that you don't already know when I say lots of people, countless people, have died and die. Many, many thousands of people have been crucified. You may or may not know that. So, why do we have something called Christianity? Which is all about the death of one who was crucified. People die all of the time. People aren't crucified all of the time, but countless people, thousands and thousands of people were crucified and have been crucified. So what makes Christianity distinct? What makes, what makes there such a thing as Christianity? A whole religion. And the answer to that question is the fact that it's Jesus, the eternal Son of God who became a human being, was crucified, died, and was buried. What makes it different is who we're talking about. Jesus, the eternal Son, came into the world, became a human being like us. And not only that, He came and became a human being to be a representative. In Romans chapter 5, it talks about how God, through a representative, namely Jesus, rescues Sinners and provides salvation, provides redemption, provides reconciliation between God and those who oppose God. So we have Christianity because of the death of Jesus, who is the unique representative who came and came here on a perfect mission, and his mission was accomplished so that as the representative, he's successful. And he's successful on behalf of his people, everyone who would ever trust in him. That's why Christianity is about the death of Jesus, because of who he is and because of his success. And so this morning, when we look at the 19th chapter of John, and we're going to look at the second half this morning, and it's going to be about the crucifixion of Jesus. And that was after his betrayal and after his mistreatment and after gross injustice shown to him. And then he's crucified and dies. What makes it extraordinary is not that he dies and not that he's crucified. What makes it extraordinary is because of who he is. And because of what it means for him to do that. And what it means even for us to have him do that for us. So as we're reading about the crucifixion of Jesus and as we're hearing Jesus say things and as we're observing things in this gospel account, let me just remind you to keep some things in mind. Keep in mind that this is happening because it's part of the plan. In chapter 17, we definitely learned about that. 
but we've been hearing all about it throughout John's gospel account. So keep that in mind. This is part of the plan. This is part of, of the grave being conquered, death being defeated. This is Jesus on mission. He was sent here to do this. Think of this as well as we read it. Think of the fact that Jesus did this voluntarily. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 5, it says, He gave Himself up for us. Okay, This is out of His love for His people, not just who were alive then, but even in chapter 17, He talked about those who would be His people who would be alive later who would believe in Him, i.e. us. So keep that in mind. He's doing this out of love for us. He's doing this because this is part of the plan. Also keep in mind that there's all, all kinds of... Um, spiritual significance behind this. John doesn't give us a lot of those details. We have to go to other places to get the details. We have to go to earlier in John to get the details because Jesus gives us the interpretation, if you will, of what's going to happen on the cross. But it's not necessarily spelled out in chapter 19. So I'm just asking you to be mind-engaged, brain-engaged, heart-engaged as we witness the horrific terrible act of Jesus being crucified. Great cost to him so that comes, it comes to us freely. Okay, beginning in verse 28. We've already looked at the first 27 verses. If you're just joining us, awesome. You came just in time. He's been beaten, he's been mocked, there's been injustice shown to him. Verse 28 says, after this, after all of those bad things, and after he made sure his mother was taken care of, because that's what sons are supposed to do. Remember, even that's part of God's law, and he came to fulfill God's law, to love your mother and father. So the very last thing he does is make sure his mother's taken care of, probably his widowed mother. All the bad, him being faithful even amidst all of the bad, it's amazing, that was still on his mind. Yes, he's a faithful son. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Now, I want to make sure that we see some of the significance here, as you know I like to do. After this, Jesus. Now, every time we see the name Jesus in the Bible, I don't stop and talk for 15 minutes, okay? I won't stop and talk for 15 minutes today either, but I I at least want to remind you, this is Jesus being crucified. And Jesus is going to say, it is finished and everything's accomplished. Jesus. He's named Jesus according to Matthew chapter 1 because the angel tells them to name him Jesus because he will what? He will save His people. He will save His people from their sins. He will deliver them from their sins. And so I at least want to remind you here today, Jesus is going to say it is is finished. That helps us to know what's finished. His saving work, the very one who is named God saves, is saving. That's the one. Knowing that all was now 
finished. It says, I thirst. That's taken from Psalm 69, 21. All kinds of Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled here. I'll mention them as we go. He's given the cheap sour wine. This is different from the wine that was offered to him earlier that would have been to take away pain. This is more from what we read from extra biblical sources. This was, it would have been a cheap sour wine like a thirst quencher for the Romans. It's not to take away pain at all. If anything, it's, it's to keep you going. Hyssop is probably important here, not just because um, it was what was used as convenience. But remember, we're gonna, it's Passover holiday. And during the Passover, when you put the blood on your doorpost, so the angel of death, death would pass over your house, you applied it with the hyssop branch. I don't think that's on accident based upon other things we're going to say, what we're going to see. Jesus is called the Passover lamb. He's the one whose blood is shed. He's the perfect Passover lamb. His blood is shed. All of that um, from Exodus chapter 12 uh, is designed to prefigure this, leading up toward this. So as they use the hyssop to make application of the blood, here is his blood. There's a hyssop branch involved, even though it's not with blood here. It seems like Passover imagery is in play on some level. And I know it will be in just a little while. How about verse 30? When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And those are probably some of the most important words we will ever hear. I'm back to that place of not knowing how to do justice to this in a sermon. We might think, well, maybe we should say it a certain way so it has a more dramatic effect. And I think, and ruin it? And misrepresent it? But I know that he said it is finished. Exactly how he said it, I don't know. Not as one who was a mere victim, I know that. Because he's actually the conquered king who's a conquering king through being conquered. His work is finished. It is done. It's a great reality. This is the the, the greatest reality. This is why you, you have assurance if you're a Christian and you have assurance. It's, again, at great cost to him, it comes to us freely. His work is finished. It comes from one Greek word. And you don't need to know the Greek word to be spiritual or a Christian or understand it. So I won't tell it to you. It is finished. Done. Used in religious context, sometimes outside of the Bible, when your religious devotion is completed for the day. Also, and I think it's important, it's also used in economic kind of language. When you have made your last payment. And they give you the title, if you will. It's used in the commercial world. The payment in Jesus' work is at times described as a payment, an atoning sacrifice, a propitiatory sacrifice, if you want to use that word. It's done. In other words, paid in full. And now you're free. 
And Jesus, it is finished. His work is accomplished so that now, spiritually, those he represents, his people, you if you're a believer, can go free. God doesn't hold your trespasses, your violations, your sins against you. Is the reality. It's quite amazing. It is finished. It is done. Work is complete. And I think it's important that we keep that in mind and, and think about what Jesus has been saying up until this point in time. Remember back in chapter 17, we won't go there, but he's sent here to do a certain work by his Father. He came here to do it. And now we have the connection. It's finished. Work is done. Work is complete. Taken care of. John 17, 4. I said we wouldn't go there. I lied. That's why I need a substitute. Um, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So in his prayer, we're leading into accomplished. Well, now it's, it's accomplished. This is why there is a Christianity. He's the faithful son. He's the sure savior. He's not a mere victim of circumstance. Maybe also look with me, if you would, where it says, uh, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. That's good to see. Why is that good to see? Because he's in control. True or false, Jesus was murdered. It's a trick question. Right? He was murdered. At the hands of godless men, it says. In Acts 2. But he gives up his spirit. Remember earlier when Jesus said, no one takes my life from me? And nobody does. I lay my life down. He's not a mere victim of circumstance. He gives up his spirit. He's in charge. He's in control, which is pretty baffling to my mind. John 10, verse 18, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. So when you think about Jesus, think of Jesus saying, It is finished. Think of Jesus giving up His Spirit. He's in charge. He's in control. Just as an aside, because it's kind of heavy stuff, and this is a little on the lighter side, I'm standing up here this morning preaching, and I can't help but myself but kind of think, this is a weird thing. Preaching is a weird thing. We do it because the Bible says we're supposed to do it, and we're Christians, and so we do preaching. And you do listening. It's associated with proclamation, good news, heralding, what does God say? Molly and I were getting ready to go to bed last night, we are flipping channels, why, I don't know. And there was a preacher on TV. And we just sat there with our jaws open for I don't know how long. It was a preacher we'd never seen on TV before. And it was like, 
young, new generation, but the same old, same old kind of trying to sell you, sell you something, health, wealth, and prosperity. And it was like one weird thing after another, and it was just bizarre. But it made me not want to be a preacher. I just thought the last thing in the world I want to do is look like that. And there's something in me this morning that doesn't want to be a preacher because who's the crazy guy up there in the floral shirt ranting and raving? It's a weird thing. The Apostle Paul even talks about the foolishness of preaching. Going on and on about preaching Christ, the foolishness of Christ, preaching Christ, how crazy it is to preach that you must believe in one who is crucified if you want to have everlasting life. And that's what we're going to proclaim to people? I think I'll probably do it my whole life by God's grace because if it's true, it's good news to us. And I'll do whatever I possibly can do to try to make it as clear as I could possibly make it and urge people to believe in Jesus because he's worthy of your trust. But I won't say, call the number on the screen now. (laughs) There's a lot of money to be made off manipulating people. It is crazy. It is crazy. Which maybe is one reason I am a preacher. Because it ought not be so. And you can help people who are enslaved to such things by learning some of these things that we learn. It is finished. Work done. Accomplished. Great cost to Him so it can come to us freely. It really is amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Now let's move on and we're going to see what happens to the body of Jesus. And I I hate to move on because I think we could do a whole series on it is finished. But we're going to move on now. So let's go to verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day. The reason that's saying that is because it's Passover. It's a special kind of Sabbath. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So let's read it in the best light. In the best light, the Jews go to Pilate and they say, take the bodies down because it's unthinkable to have the bodies up because it's Sabbath and it wouldn't be right to have these gross images. Taken in the best light from Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 to 23, that's right. You don't want to have these hung criminals uh, for all to see on their way to celebrate the Sabbath. So we take them in their best light. But we can't take them in their best light, can we? We can't take them in their best light because here is Jesus, the one who is on earth doing what he's doing in order to fulfill Passover. All of the Passover holidays, all that happened way, way, way before an Exodus was actually designed as a type and anticipation of the reality who is Jesus. And he comes and he does everything right and he's proven to do everything right. Even unbelievers say he's innocent. What's wrong with you crazy people? They demand that he's crucified. So he's crucified and now, because we must keep up appearances, 
because we are faithful, loyal, believing people. We wouldn't want to violate the law. It's sick. It's crazy, but it just shows how perverse we can become. And I'm going to say we. They were part of the right religion. How perverse we can become in our thinking when sin clouds our minds. And we do the absolute unthinkable kind of stuff and we use Bible verses to defend ourselves. And it's just crazy. By the way, it shows us why we need Jesus as a Savior. Romans, the Roman practice was to leave the bodies up. Let the birds eat them. Let, the, let, let them stand for the people to see. That's why you don't betray the government. But again, we've talked about this before. The, the, the Romans are occupying Israel and they're, they're walking the fine line because you don't want the major insurrection, which, by the way, is going to happen later. And you, So you want to keep the people under Caesar's thumb, so to speak, but you also want to provide allowances. Got to compromise, got to work together. So they are going to make sure the bodies are taken down. Fake piety. Okay, verse 32. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first. I'm about ready to try to say a word I know I can't pronounce. The Romans had this practice and it was called crurifragium. That was pretty good. Um, They would smash the shin bones with an iron mallet. to expedite death because the person could no longer keep pushing themselves up. So now they're going to die faster. So you might think it's actually worse to have that happen and think how terrible it would be to have happen, but it was actually something that would speed up death because the Romans didn't want to speed up death. They wanted it to be terrible so no one would want to be crucified. And the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. 34 says, But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. So you have death experts. This is what they do. And their evaluation is, he's already dead. We don't need to break his legs. They pierce his side, perhaps just as a one, one more option, just to make sure that he's dead. Oh yes, he's dead. Because if you weren't dead and they pierced your side, everyone would know you weren't dead, right? So they pierce his side. And out comes blood and water. I think I have 20 pages of different explanations about what the blood and water are. And I'm going to say like R.C. Sproul says, don't ask me. (laughs) If you'd like the 20 pages, you can have them. They pierce his side and blood and water come out. I would suggest to you that the safest explanation is they pierced his side and blood and water came out. (laughs) Blood, that's easy. Maybe another fluid that looks like water, a clear fluid. There you go. Why? Well, in part to make sure he's dead, right? That's the obvious. Duh. 
But also, it does help us to remember that he's, he's a, John is emphasizing some of these things and underscoring them. He's a real human being. And a lot of times, we don't have a problem with that in our day. But throughout church history, it's been an issue. Where people have thought Jesus was a phantom, or he was only a spirit, and, and he wasn't a real human being. No, he's a real human being to the point where they could crucify him. And he's a real human being to the point where if they stick him in the side... Blood and water come out. Remember chapter 1 verse 14, He became flesh and dwelt among us. In First John, John had to emphasize this because of false teaching. We even touched Him. That's how real He was. Real human being really died. How about 35? He who saw it has borne witness. So this is a bit of a transition. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And this is how John speaks about himself. I don't know of anyone who I have ever read who doesn't think this is John talking about himself, that the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's cloaked. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. Especially in light of chapter 20 and 21. I think it's, this is John. And he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. What's happening there? Maybe, for starters, it's kind of shocking, I think it's meant to be shocking, that he says, in order that you might believe, my audience... So much of it's been, this is what happened. Here's what happened next. Here's what happened with these people. Here's what happened next. And you know what? I saw this stuff, and I'm a credible witness. I'm an eyewitness. These things are true, objective history. And you know what? There's a purpose behind it. It's not just so you know more stuff. That I'm writing these things. These things have been written so that you would believe. There's a moral call, if you will. And we know, if we've been reading John, and if you haven't been reading John, I can bring you up to speed throughout the whole gospel account again and again and again and again and again and again and again. What he's been saying is, if you believe in Jesus, which means trust, rest, place your confidence in, all the same reality. If you trust in Jesus as your Savior, the one who will finish it for you, if you will, and atone for your rebellion... Okay? If you trust in Jesus, you will have eternal life. It comes up again and again and again and again and again and again. Eternal life, eternal life, eternal life, eternal life, eternal life. The whole thing's been about eternal life for people who don't deserve eternal life. And the way you gain eternal life is by trusting in the one who completed the work. It is finished. It's the it is finished Savior. And if you trust in Him, not in yourselves, what was at great cost to Him, as I've been saying this morning, comes freely to you. I love it that John does this. John doesn't want you, let's make it personal. John doesn't want you to say, well, those, that's an interesting story. It's not why he read it or wrote it. I, or he doesn't want you to say, you know what, that's pretty interesting. Um, that sounds like it could be historically credible. And you know, when you cross-reference with the writings of Josephus, the Jewish historian, and these other people, you know what? Well, that seems like pretty good history. 
No, John is saying, I'm an eyewitness, okay? This isn't because I had a burning in my bosom, whatever that is. This isn't because I had this weird kind of feeling and I feel it to be uh, something that everybody should know. It's not this subjective thing. I'm an eyewitness. I saw these things with my very eyes. Oh, and there's a moral call, a moral obligation that's good for you. I'm telling you this so that you would believe and have eternal life. And remember, Jesus is the one who says you have to believe in Him for eternal life. In John chapter 14. I love that. John 3.15 Whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. 3.16, Did you get all those? Sounds like a quarterback and audibling and, oh, I forgot we're not supposed to talk about football in our state anymore. The call is to trust in Jesus for eternal life. And the way that that can be true is His work is finished. He's not just a martyr. He's not just the one who is the model of faith. He's not the one who is a good Christian and we should try to be good Christians like Jesus because He was the first Christian. No. He's the one who accomplished the work given to him by his Father for eternal life for everyone who believes. And he says his work is finished. Paid in full. This is why Christians talk about salvation being by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. It's shorthand for the way we explain things. It's good and right. And inevitably and invariably, when it's faith and what we do, in one way or another, it's always an assault and an undermining of the it is finished declaration of Jesus. And so it's not the same Jesus. By the way, this is where Christian assurance comes from. Because if your assurance is based upon your faithfulness, You can't really have it. But if your assurance is based upon His faithfulness, then your assurance can be based upon His faithfulness and you are trusting in Him, the faithful one. But yeah, but that would be too easy. You know what I kind of want to say to that? How dare you say it was easy? Betrayed? Beaten? Isaiah says, marred more than any man? Rejected? Crucified? And on and on we go. Not to mention the fact, what Mel Gibson could never capture in his movie when he's trying to show the physical sufferings, For Jesus to say on the cross as the substitute, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
the spiritual side of things. That would be too easy. It wasn't anything but easy for Jesus. But his work is done, so it comes to us freely. We know the song. It's a great, great lyric. I'll just quote part of it. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high. And then we say, hallelujah, what a Savior. A Savior who really saves. And John writes, so that you might believe. 36 says, For these things took place, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of His bones will be broken. Psalm 34, verse 20, because God cares for the righteous. Yeah, He is the ultimate righteous. Not to mention Exodus chapter 12, verse 46, The Passover lamb was to have no bones broken. He's the Passover lamb. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 1. Then verse 37 says, and again another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Zechariah 12.10, Revelation chapter 1 verse 7. Isaiah 53.5, he was pierced for our transgressions. Then back to our text, verse 38, so we can wrap things up. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, I wrote in my margin, a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, Mark chapter 15, verse 34. He's one of the Jewish officials. After these things, Jewish, Jewish. Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, he was one, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. I listened to a whole sermon on that yesterday. It was intriguing. I won't preach a whole sermon now. You're welcome. So we look at him and he's a secret disciple, so he's the weak one. But isn't it interesting? I love this. The weak one now does the super strong thing. I like surprises like that. Some surprises I don't like. I like those kind of surprises. Of all people, he's not going to do that. He's a coward. And the cowardly one is emboldened and he goes and risks his own neck by doing what he does here. I love that. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, remember him? Chapter 3, you must be born again, the teacher of the Jews. So something's happened in Nicodemus' life, right? Apparently the Holy Spirit has sovereignly blown in that direction. If, you don't, if that doesn't make sense to you, it's because of chapter 3. Came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes and 75 pounds in weight about 75 pounds in weight, so they're going to do their Jewish custom. It's not embalming. The Jews didn't embalm. No doubt part of it was just because of the smell and the decaying flesh, so they're going to wrap him up and and make it as least offensive as possible and show respect in that way, not only to him, but to those who are around him. 
40 says, So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. That's Isaiah 53, 9 fulfillment. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. And that's it. Until he's raised from the dead. And how do we know he's going to be raised from the dead? Because you read ahead. (laughs) To get into the meaning of things and to get into the theology of things. Maybe I should rephrase it. How did Jesus know that he would be raised from the dead? Well, because he's omniscient. Okay, fine. Front of the class. Um, How did Jesus know? Jesus knew he was going to be raised from the dead because Jesus knew that he had perfectly obeyed. And there wasn't anything that was expected of him that he didn't do. Because the wages of sin is death. Jesus has now died and he's never sinned. In fact, he's only ever done the right thing. And therefore, it is absolutely, positively impossible for him to stay dead. This is why the Apostle Paul says he was raised and he says he was justified or vindicated, declared a lawkeeper at his resurrection. And the great thing is, we're going to end on this, that's why the Bible says he was raised for our justification. Because if the perfect one who did everything perfectly right was crucified and then raised, proving that he was perfect, and he did those things on our behalf, those who would trust in him, it's a guaranteed fact. If he's our representative, we most certainly, absolutely, without question, must be raised from the dead unto newness of life. It's really, really quite extraordinary. Romans chapter 10. Okay, we're out of time. We're going to pray. There's so much more, but that's just how it always is. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for Jesus, who is a great faithful Savior, who did everything necessary so that we might have eternal life. Thank you that, as Isaiah says, he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Thank you that he does that for us. Thank you that he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, even as we've read about this morning. We are thankful that we have a great Savior in Jesus. May we find ourselves all the more trusting in him, and may those who have never trusted in him find him to be the adequate, perfect, sufficient Savior so that they might have eternal life by believing in him also. In Jesus' name, amen.